Hello, Jeremy. Thank you very much for accepting our invitation. This is the fifth episode of Triple AI podcast, and we are here to talk about your amazing book, The Web of Meaning. I am just finished um, basically um, reading your book. You are an incredible author, very talented, very hopeful pen. I have a lot of questions for you, and I think this is going to be a very exciting conversation on um, this amazing um, journey of finding an integrative approach uh, in this current world that we're living. So uh, let's uh, talk, please. Um, I was, uh, I'm thinking of maybe you begin by giving us um, ideas about who you are as this mm-hmm. great author and also maybe gradually moving towards explaining um, how you began your journey of writing uh, the Web of Meaning. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Shima. Really happy to be here today, and I'm so glad to hear that you really enjoyed the book. That um, makes my my heart feel good. Um, and uh, yeah, well, I um, I guess the way to really approach it is to look at the fact that the book itself is the result of <clears throat> many years of my own life's journey, and. Um, you know, the the book's called The Web of Meaning. And meaning uh, is a big part of what that journey was that led me to write the book in the first place. Because basically, about halfway through my <clears throat> my sort of adult life, had um, uh, kind of the things I'd built around me sort of crashed. I'd, um, first part of my life, I'd been a business person. I'd started an internet company, uh, like an entrepreneur. I took it public. Um, and then things crashed around me. My wife at the time, she passed away some years back, but she got very sick and I left the company to look after her full time. Then the company crashed. But meanwhile, um, she suffered from sort of borderline dementia and I kind of lost the um, the the really close relationship I had with her and felt very much as if everything of my life had crashed. And I was determined that whatever I did with the rest of my life was going to be truly meaningful. And that led me to like ask this question, well, what is meaning? And I, I didn't want to just take somebody else's word for what you should do. I wanted to really figure it out for myself. But that ended up <clears throat> sort of like peeling an onion of um, trying to understand where things arose. Um, and the subtitle of the book <clears throat> um, is actually Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe. And that's very much what that journey was for me. I I wanted to find a path of meaning that was truly rational, that I could understand cognitively that I didn't just want to take some act of faith from somebody and say, you know, believe me, the world is like this and, and, and okay, you know, I wanted it to really make sense to me, but also to integrate my heart and my embodied sense of what is what is real in the world. So I did a lot of exploration of wisdom traditions like Taoism, Buddhism, uh, Neo-Confucianism, indigenous wisdom, and also looking at science. And I began to realize after some years that this kind of split that we are told exists between science and like spiritual understanding is a made-up split. There is actually it's in the it's in the integration between those that meaning can actually arise, and that's a lot of what I write about in the book. Um, yeah, I, I, well, thank you. I think it's uh, well. Thank you for first uh, this heartful share. Um, I always, I think maybe I open a new window in, in this conversation. Is that 
it, what fascinates me during this uh, conversation is that I always prepare for them. I make a note and kind of how to approach them and how to kind of have a flow. And I think every time there is more than what you prepare. And I think there is this spirit of really being in the moment and listening to the um, to the emotions and also to the story and journey of every person that kind of uh, forces me also to 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 adapt and I think to be um, to take a totally I think a different trajectory from what I I, I thought that's gonna, that this is the strategy right. I will have in conversation I feel uh, what you shared is made me think of the underlying force uh, that I think maybe it's present in the human life uh, for searching for meaning is this trauma the pain there, there exists some sort of um, encounter with this uh, pain, yeah. which yes. surprisingly I think brings me to the last or the end of your convers- your book. We talk about the dukkha or the suffering yes. and the way that we want to kind of basically mm-hmm. um, understand and discomfort and and, and 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 sadness or pain yeah. is this. Um, evolutionary trajectory and, and I think a vehicle of pain that forces to search for meaning and your book the web of meaning uh, in a way I feel it, it, it's that personal like beginning from a personal perspective towards a world that probably is in right now the world that we're living right now is also in crisis of meaning yes so what is but like you as a person you said you've been a business person so meaning that you've yeah. mastered the, the the laws of business and then coming to your personal life facing this discomfort and sadness um, and then now looking at the world in this crisis of meaning what do you see be the the pattern or the healing mechanism from an individual to the level of uh, uh, society and the world yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, a profound questions there, Shima. Yeah, and I I think it's really important place where you, where you're going in asking that. Um, and I think yeah, I, I do think it begins with that Buddhist notion of dukkha that you that you just mentioned. And for people who haven't come across that that term, like basically it's, it's a very core concept in Buddhism, which <clears throat> and translates often in simple English is like suffering, uh, the word dukkha, but it means something much more than suffering. It means like um, a deeper sense of unease, a sense of not really feeling fulfilled properly as a <clears throat> as a human being. Um, and it's something that um, is fundamental really to any kind of spiritual path or spiritual journey that people take, because <clears throat> as a, every one of us has some level of dukkha you know there's always kind of levels of suffering or whatever but it's not about suffering <clears throat> just in the terms of oh something's wrong and i, I want to fix it and whatever it's more that <clears throat> and as human beings we always have this 
kind of need for the next thing. Like we we want even if if we want something really badly, and then we finally get it, whether it's that new car or the new job or so, whatever it might be. Then for a moment we might feel really good, like oh great, I can celebrate. And then we want the next thing, the next thing. And oftentimes modern day psychologists call that like the hedonic treadmill. Like we're we're sort of driven to want that next thing, and. A lot of what the spiritual path is about <clears throat> is、um, actually recognizing that kind of suffering within ourselves, and then、um, following with a desire to not have that suffering, because many people <clears throat> they might <clears throat> recognize that suffering, but then they they kind of just respond to it by. Wanting to just sort of deaden the pain, and they might turn to、um, just all the stuff that we have on the internet, where they just <clears throat> their minds just get kind of、um, you know turn sort of、uh, almost hypnotized by all the stuff out there, or turn to whatever it is, alcohol or drugs or whatever, just to deaden that pain. But on the the spiritual path goes a little deeper and says, what can I do to find the source of that suffering and shift it, and. And that's、um, where is where sometimes a real meltdown, like happened in my life,、um, and often happens in people's lives, can turn out to be one of the greatest blessings in a life trajectory. Not saying always does, but it has the potential because it can sometimes force you to look deeper into what are the sources of the suffering you might have in your life, and how can that be different. Um, and that can lead to fundamental changes in life. And to your question about how that relates to our society as a whole, I think something very similar takes place there too. So we we live in a society that has all kinds of terrible pathologies.、Um, it's really a society that、um, causes immense harm. There's the actual obvious massive harm that it causes to billions and billions of people who are exploited and. Who are barely surviving from one day to the next as a result of the overall global system, and even the people who seem to be in places of privilege are on, for the most part, on this hedonic treadmill, and like、um, don't can't even don't even have a moment to try to get off it.、Um, and it's really as long as that society stays relatively stable, the suffering just continues. But just like I was.、Um, In an individual, we might have this meltdown. Our society itself may is really heading towards a kind of unraveling, and in that unraveling、um, is both a lot of fear for how bad things can get, and and all kinds of suffering that it might cause for people. So it's not like something that I would celebrate or want to happen. But out of that kind of unraveling is the possibility that. Uh, actually, a, a collective intelligence begins to say, "We don't need this kind of suffering as a society anymore. We can do something different. We can change the foundations of our society." And that's a lot of actually what my work is about, among along with many other people, is to look at how we could actually make our society different by changing the very foundations of how it's how it's、uh, built. And exactly, I think this is the the courage that one has to look at that dukkha, suffering, or deep uh,、right. uh, pain, or deep discomfort. That that I think opens the the trajectory for major evolution that that are possible and are waiting there. So I think is that、uh, at the level of personal、uh, persons, or if I look at my own life. 
the the most the profound like the saddest that those moments they I think the faster were my evolution or the deeper was the degree of transformation. But I think comes with that two elements. One is courage, which I think is just a the ability to face what is not right, what is not feeling right. And second, the another form of form of courage, which is actually saying yes and kind of going through that journey of transformation. I and I I feel like right now with with the state of the world uh, it seems that a lot of people are realizing that something is not right but i feel that the courage to admit at the level of collective that we need to go on a personal and uh, interpersonal transformation transformative journey is still uh, not uh, yet cultivated and my my purpose with my own uh, writing my own book mindful smart cities and also this podcast and my uh, tech companies that really bringing people like yourself and other visionaries that were kind enough to say yes to this invitation to really talk about ways to to promote this journey to mm. to to help people to actually understand that there is some sort of uh, personal transformation interpersonal yeah. transformation that has to take place in order for change to happen Yes. Yeah, I really like what you're saying. I, I and I think that I think courage plays a very big part um, because actually it's courage really that um, kind of incites us to go from that place of going like, oh, there's something wrong. I don't want to deal with it. You know, I'll just go on the internet. I'll watch TV. I'll do. Um, it's but it's courage that actually um, helps us to turn towards. Let me look at the source because in many ways that's the most difficult place to go because sometimes we have to go to deeply felt harms or um traumas that we've had early on in our lives uh, which we've like spent years kind of covering over so we don't have to go there but it's only by looking at those that we can really um begin to actually make the transformation but along with the courage i think are a couple of hugely important factors too um one is basically compassion um and kindness because and, and that means really compassion and kindness to ourselves um when we look towards those places because oftentimes we'll see things we don't like in ourselves and it's very easy to react negatively to um like we might have experienced reactions from others parental figures or authorities or whatever that there's something wrong with that part of me and then we kind of tighten up but it's when we can begin to actually be compassionate to all the parts of ourselves that allows that courage and the trust to actually explore further and again that, that applies in our world as a whole um actually even when we see people doing things that we hate and we fundamentally disagree with them politically whatever it, it might be to actually look at them with compassion and kindness actually can also be a way to begin to build trust to begin to um move towards positive um factors but then one other another factor that i think is also just as important we might call it discernment because um if we have the courage to look at things if our sort of way of making sense of things is um not quite right or is basically framed by Uh, a dominant world view that has basically a lot of fundamental misconceptions there's very often we might take the wrong interpretation 
and no matter so no matter how much courage we have we might just end up um <clears throat> going down the wrong path which doesn't even help ourselves or anybody else and <clears throat> you know in our own internal path discernment um is something that we can actually learn a little bit through processes like meditation where we um if we have the right guidance in that we can begin to um openly look at um sort of stories we might make about ourselves and recognize that they are just stories and recognize that actually um just because i say i've said something about myself or about another person for years and years doesn't make it true that it's a story might be some truth might not be but begin we can begin to realize that there's a broader or different ways of making sense of things and again that can be applied to our overall society that when we begin to realize that stories that are commonly told culturally are basically our dominant world view things that we're just told um just sort of so much part of our conversations we don't even have to explicitly state them things like um that humans are separate from nature or that nature's a machine basically the and we can like re-engineer it to make it do what we want and the reason the earth is there is for humans to basically exploit as much as possible for our own benefits so there are things that we take for granted because they're so ingrained in our worldview that are basically both um factually basically wrong scientifically wrong as well as being very dangerous and harmful but when we can begin to be aware of that conditioning and apply discernment we can begin to come up with different ways of relating to the world very profound very profound and i think it it brings me to this um uh part of your book um which i highlighted is that um the difference you make between the self and the i mm-hmm. and the comparison we, we, that you you put in the book about uh you cannot jump into the same river twice right. i think it's that um so so much of uh the story of the self is so uh i think deeply crystallized that it's taken by mistake uh for the i so the i and self are kind of uh, mixed up with each other and i think with 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 this um i think tanglement of the concept of of the self that the self can be changed can be rewritten the programming the ideas the conditioning and um and this association with the i um, i think there is so much to to learn uh in this space of reinventing ourselves in the world that we're living and um and just what you said about compassion um i think um, i really like um, that you you brought up compassion and uh, and even holding compassion and mindfulness for for people politicians or figures that we are not agreeing with their decision or action in the world is that uh something in my um approach um uh, uh, we take on uh, developing smart societies my mindful smart societies is that to redefine the notion of technology so technology is not just the phone and sensors and ai but also kindness kindness is soft technology can move mountains uh, and and really bring a lot of people together so i think for me this this section of um looking at places where we we haven't looked for for example the opening of the heart or being more kind 
being more compassionate in this world, showing up differently. That is also a way to, uh, I think, free way, probably the cheapest way to be uh, having a positive impact in this world is to, to have this shift of internal shift of first being compassionate to ourselves and then showing up compassionate. And then I think that would change us just exactly as you've been through the process of transformation and bringing this book that about meaning to the world from a different place in yourself, which is not a place of uh, greed or wanting and this kind of section of um, um, coming to the end of your book about the Tao that the there is no greater curse than the desire for gain. I think that is a transformation. <laughs> transformation. You've been. I think that would change the way we build. That would change the way we show up. Um, yes. <clears throat> yeah. I I think all that is true, and um, I think <clears throat> that what is crucial there is to understand almost like a shift in our identity of who we are and really that's a lot of um where the book begins to um uh sort of introduce the these ideas as you go through as you go through the book is like we're we're told basically in our dominant worldview um that we're sort of separate individuals basically um and um as a separate individual uh well one of the things that is inculcated in us is that um really what life is about is to make everything as good as possible for number one and there's kind of some zero sum game you know if i outcompete others i'll be i'll do better and um <clears throat> and so there's this very much a sense that i my identity is separate from others and when we begin to understand both from systems sciences like scientific understanding as well as through these great wisdom traditions is that actually that sort of sense of a fixed eye is an illusion it's one of the things that we tell ourselves um, in order to sort of create this identity but actually everything is the result of interactions with other um other phenomena around us and <clears throat> that's other people um interactions with our past interactions with all that is going on in life and when we begin to really be sense that and and through practices like meditation and and other kinds of um contemplative practices we can begin to realize that our identity is not so fixed that actually um part of um who I am is a separate self. I mean there's there's something that is separate. Um if if somebody comes along and hits my arm, my arm hurts and nobody else's arm hurts and and if I'm hungry, somebody else might be right next to me eating a big meal. They're not hungry. I mean there's clearly things where my um my entity, my um organism is is a separate uh experience. And at the same time, part of our evolved human heritage is that i identify not just with my family but with all my community um and in fact as we begin to expand that we can begin to identify with basically all of humanity all of life um like even going beyond human life to um recognizing that what each of us is really is one uh, sort of part of life unfolding um and you know just as statements these might sound like sort of nice statements but not that meaningful but when we begin to experience that from a deeper place 
it shifts our very sense of what matters to us. And in fact, part of what the this book, The Web of Meaning, actually begins to uh, sort of recognize or um, unfold is the fact that meaning itself is actually a function of those interrelationships between all the different parts of things, which is why it's called the web of meaning, that meaning arises from the way everything interacts with everything else. So the, the more, when my identity is totally fixed, that often leads to a crisis of meaning. It's one of the reasons why we have this kind of existential crisis going around our entire civilization, because everyone is told that they're separate from each other, which leads to a sense of alienation a sense of meaninglessness. And as we begin to expand that identity to really connect with all around us, meaning begins to infuse within our very day-to-day ex uh, -day experience. I think this is such an interesting and, and I feel also important um, point that you're making, the web of meaning at the same time, but in the time that we are deeply going into this interconnected web of technology so the self i feel the self is not only not only exists with this web of life but also the web of creation the web mm. of industry the web of um, all these meaning structures paradigms ideologies technologies so this self is uh, all the time i think it's in this different kind of association and, and relationship with this uh, emerging uh, creative impulses, if I can call them this way. And I think at the same time, there is this danger of further alienation. That because of the relationship, as you mentioned about expanding the sense of self and going outside and allowing this uh, expansion uh, brings more meaning into ourselves. Uh, I think when we look at the technological evolution, it has not been working in that direction. And you also mentioned this in the beginning of the book about two underlying forces of the Tao, the Wu Wei and the Yu Wei. Mm -hmm. That's the part that I really um, appreciated because it shows that, well, there are ways that uh, the ancient wisdom, they looked at the world and they saw some sort of um, balancing dynamic going on. And it seems that we have lost that balance we have mm -hmm. lost it in the sense that we have been taking for granted the connection and the deep relationship we have with the web of life. And then we added the web of technology. And then I think there the same symptoms are arising. So I was, I'm kind of expanding a little bit in the um, thinking. And I, I also, I want to know more of what you think on how this web of meaning can be expanded in the digital domain, how our digital selves can benefit from this expansion of meaning? Yeah, yeah great, great questions and <clears throat> so important. And, and I think that, yeah, a good place to begin is to go back to what you were just describing uh, that I talk about early in the book is this um, distinction that the ancient Taoists made between what they called Wu Wei and Yu Wei. And um, like, well, the term Wu Wei I mean, for, for people who know about Taoism, they'll have come, that's one of the core terms in, in Taoism. Basically what it really means is a sense of like effortless action. Um, I mean, it, what it 
literally translates that as something like non-action or whatever. <clears throat> But it's not just like being passive and not doing something. It's about when you do something, doing it in an effortless kind of way. Sort of a um, modern phrase might be going with a flow or something like that. Um, <clears throat> and uh, what the Taoists saw is that when they looked at all of nature around them, they saw basically every um, <clears throat> every organism acting in this kind of effortless way. They did what they did um, <clears throat> without having to sort of think about it so much, whether it's just plants growing or whether it's birds flying or fish swimming, like they just do their thing in this kind of effortless way. And uh, they, there were like, there was a sense that humans could act in that way too. There was a, um, but like when they'd come up with stories of humans acting in that way, it would almost be like sort of, these incredibly unusual stories of like this um, almost like supernatural uh, cook who would sort of um, who also like was more like the uh, the butcher and he would sort of cut the carcass of the ox almost without touching it like like some sort of samurai warrior or whatever and that was the sense of Wu Wei and so <clears throat> their point was that a lot of what humans do is not effortless at all but is filled with effort and <clears throat> that's what this term Yu Wei relates to, which is Yue means basically effortful action. And the Taoists would say like effortful action, like that Yue is things like um, if you sort of want to try to pump water up a hill to irrigate a mountain, you're sort of going against the flow of things. Or if you try to <clears throat> dry out some area through um, creating a fire and like burning it up, that's like effortful. Um, <clears throat> and then people would say to the Taoists, but isn't that what civilization is all about is like building things and basically separating from nature and the Taoists would say right exactly and that's the problem with civilization that is it's taken us away from our true nature um and that's it's and so to them the whole practice is to get back to that wu way of effortlessness but so then it leads to this kind of fundamental uh kind of paradox if you will because It seems like humans, as we've evolved, that's part of what we are is to have Yu-Wei in our lives as well as Wu-Wei. Um, ever since we first evolved as human beings, um, when we first learned how to like use fire, even before we became modern Homo, homo sapiens, like years and millions of years ago, we learned we could do things with fire and and then we learned how to develop tools. And even language itself is a technology. Um, which is interesting because the the great classic of Taoism, the Tao Te Ching, begins with a paradox. It basically says the Tao that can be told, like in language, is not the true Tao, because almost like language itself separates us <clears throat> from that true Tao. But then, of course, it goes on and tries to offer <clears throat> through language its own version of the Tao. So that's kind of what the paradox is. But I think that gets to the heart of your question, because <clears throat> when we look. Um, those are basic technologies from uh, many, many years, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago. But when we look at sophisticated technology today, we're looking at the same thing in many ways, that we use technology as a separation from nature. And, and the technology, in a way, is almost the essence of UA. It's about doing stuff <clears throat> to kind of manipulate nature to get what we want. And that can be true nowadays in things like genetic engineering um, or um, <clears throat> just a, a, equally anything to do with um, uh, the ways in which we 
we kind of utilize all the great learnings we have um, to do something that we want that is not necessarily naturally available. Like I'm talking to you right now from thousands of miles away. Um, and technology offers that. It's it's not something that I think we need to see as a negative, which is where I'm, I'm I don't, uh, even though I think the Taoists uh, have some great insights, um, they were kind of limited in the sense of seeing Yu Wei as being kind of the bad thing and getting to Wu Wei as being what we want to do. <clears throat> but there were a lot of sophisticated um, thinkers from that time who would build on that and try to ask a different kind of question, like, is it possible <clears throat> to find some integration of the Yu Wei, like that thing that makes us uniquely human, that ability to have language and technology and all that stuff, to integrate that with the Wu Wei. So not to reject, not to reject the technology, not to reject <clears throat> that sort of separateness, but to actually turn that separateness around to integrate with, um, <clears throat> with our sort of true nature within us and with all of life around us, which leads to a very different way of looking at things. And um, it leads to something I describe in the book and sort of go into in some depth is the sense of it, an integrated intelligence. It's like um, we can sort of think of intelligence itself as having these two aspects, like a Wu Wei aspect and a Yu Wei aspect like the intelligence that we use to develop technology uh, or all the things that <clears throat> make us, um, that, that we sort of measure like an IQ kind of thing. That's like conceptual intelligence. It's really basically like our intelligence at acting in that Yu Wei, um, purposive kind of way. And then there is our Wu Wei intelligence, our deeply embodied intelligence, like our heart intelligence, our emotional intelligence, um, our ability to basically um, be present or connect with each other in a heartful way or dance or connect with the rest of life. That's like we can conceive of that as an animate intelligence that connects us with all of life. So rather than saying that one is bad and one is good, what I put out there as this possibility is looking at how we can integrate the two and actually create an integrative intelligence where we use our conceptual abilities to then actually not re not to try to transcend or rise above our core animate embodied being, but actually make it all part of one rich whole. So that can be true both in terms of our individual path and possibility, but to your question, it can also be true about how <clears throat> our whole entire human project, our whole civilization can move forward. That rather than try to look at our cities or our technologies as conquering nature or manipulating nature or exploiting nature, we can begin to ask a different question. How can we work symbiotically with nature? Very beautiful, very beautifully said. I have my brain is now, my mind is full of thoughts and ideas. I think I am going to ask all of them <laughs> one by one. I think the first one is that when, when you mentioned about the Tao that cannot be named is not the Tao, I was thinking, what if there is kind of like a hidden uh, pawn inside that statement, in that uh, by pawn, I mean the, the Zen way of basically moving the the structure of the mind for opening new insights is that I'm thinking of if we are looking as pure Taoists where there is a 
uh, extreme way of Wu Wei, and then there is extreme Wu um, uh, Wei, Wu Wei and Wu Wei. Therefore, then you only have a Tao because that Tao is very much defined. You do you want to have extreme, you want to avoid the extreme of Wu Wei, and you want to have the maximum of um, Wu uh, Wu Wei. In that, I think there you have a very clear form of Tao. Maybe the Tao, when it can be named, is not actually the Tao because it's not relative. It doesn't bring any of essence of each to each other and create this integration. Maybe the the hidden meaning there it crossed my mind that might be actually some sort of relativism, relativism, some sort of balance. And as you beautifully put in the book, as a way of integration. Um, and the, the other thing that uh, I, I found very much uh, in line with what we do, and I'm very excited about, is that uh, in my company, the name of the company is Triple AI uh, Therapeutics. The name is kind of like similar to what you mentioned about the notion of intelligence, is that I, I was uh, thinking that the way we define smart is very much utilitarian. It's very much defined by a very narrow band of intelligence, which is calculation, IQ, efficiency, extraction of things, patterns. And then we define artificial intelligence based on those. But AI could be more than just artificial intelligence, um, could be also ancient intelligence in, in the practice. That's why it's triple AI, that there are so many uh, gems of insight in our universal body of uh, wisdom that we are simply not utilizing. And if we utilize that, we are going to have a greater understanding of how to live in the, on this planet together in harmony and in harmony with other beings. And also a vacant individual as, as another form of AI. If I get awakened to this personal transformative journey, if I understand the deeper meaning of life, I am more likely to create better things and I am more likely to live in harmony. And I feel is that um, that kind of re personal responsibility that I think every person probably will at some point, because the dukkha is an integrative part of the world and experience of life. Maybe dealing with that question of dukkha in a way forces us to be awakened and then mm -hmm. bring us to this more um, integration that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Because integration is a, I think it's kind of an embodied mind, body, mind, body, and also technological mind. practice. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And I love how you describe your sort of triple AI: <laughs> the uh, artificial, and the ancient, and the awakened. And maybe I might suggest even that we could add one extra, make it almost like a <clears throat> a quadruple AI, if you will, um, by adding this concept of you that you were just touching on of animate intelligence. Um, which I, I kind of mentioned a, a little bit earlier. But I think this is a core thing to understand. Like oftentimes <clears throat> people in technology will talk, just like you say, they'll um, they'll talk about intelligence um, as if life itself is not intelligent. And <clears throat> actually where intelligence comes from is this great human brain that uh, has language and where we can develop computers and all, all this kind of stuff and all the way to where we can develop artificial intelligence, um, which is stunning and, and it's something to celebrate, absolutely. But what um, oftentimes people describing that 
seem to be completely, sometimes unaware of, is the fact that nature has its own deep intelligence, which in the book I call animate intelligence. And now what biologists, like cellular biologists, for example, now understand is that when you look at the tiniest little cell, and you know, just for context, we have about 40 trillion cells within each of our own bodies. Um, but one tiny cell that is, we can't even see is incredibly intelligent. It's like doing multiple things, like <clears throat> dozens and dozens of things at the same time. It's like um, in different portals of its membrane, it's determining which um, uh, particular molecule is good for it and which one is not good for it. Within itself, it's got all kinds of incredible um, sub-organisms within it that it uses to regenerate itself, to do what it's um, evolved to do within as part of a body. It communicates with other cells. Uh, c collectively, they decide what to do, whether they want to encourage more cells to... Uh, there, there's a whole complex complexity of a single cell doing all this kind of stuff um, microsecond to microsecond. And that's something that cellular biologists are just beginning to understand. And then that expands all the way out to plants. We think of just these kind of dumb things. When someone is <clears throat> um, had a stroke or whatever in the hospital, we say, oh, they're a vegetable, as if that's like, oh, they're, they're, they're kind of, there's nothing there. And actually plants have about 15 different senses. They actually sense the environment in more complex ways than we can as human beings with our five senses or so. Um, and at the same time, they're again, <clears throat> they might not have a separate brain, but their brain is integrated. They have a distributed um, intelligence where they're doing, they're making all kinds of decisions um, based on the environment, based on interactions with others. They communicate with each other. There's something actually even called a, a wood wide web um, <clears throat> that uh, biologist Suzanne Simard uh, has termed, where you can look at a forest and look at trees that will actually, in community, they'll share minerals with each other. The, the big mother trees will actually share minerals with the younger trees that need uh, more uh, sustenance at the edge of the forest. And that's not even talking about other mammals and all kinds of intelligence. That's an intelligence in nature itself. And I think part of what our challenge could be in developing technologies into the future is, again, to say, how can we actually um, work symbiotically with nature's own intelligence. Uh, and again, it's not to reject our form of artificial intelligence and um, conceptual intelligence, but to say, how can we make that all a symbiotic whole? I think that um, if we start to ask these different kinds of questions, that can lead us to develop a completely different trajectory for technology. Absolutely. I, I, I fully, fully, fully agree with what you said, and I feel so grateful for this conversation. And in terms of uh, animate intelligence, I, I fully agree. I will, will be honored to include it in our model. And I was super happy when I saw it that you mentioned also the original AI, which is animate intelligence. Right. I, was, I, I highlighted it and I <laughs> wish I could highlight it 10 times more, uh, is that I noticed that and I, I took some words and I am very, uh, as I said, uh, I will include it also on the model that we have. I'm thinking of, uh, as I'm looking at the notes that I have, I and based on what you mentioned, bringing the integrative approach and developing an alternative and more uh, systemic and harmonious trajectory for uh, technology, I, I'm thinking of 
the need for having new business models and new paradigms. Even that you've been also in the business world, I'm, I'm, I have less experience than you <laughs> over just a year of entrepreneurship and launching a company. Uh, I, I would like to know what are the ways that these ideas can be can be promoted in the business world. Based on also you have in the book, I, I also include another section of your book that I think is very important is that nature basically uh, creates major evolution by increasing cooperation. Zero sum right. game does not exist in uh, in, uh, in nature basically. And then also um, the notion of future of the self and, the, and overcoming the society that's based on suffering or dukkha. I think these are key parts of uh, your book. There are so many beautiful sections, but I think these are the parts that can help the bigger community, also those that are right now in the business world and want to adopt mindsets as, as similar as integration and having more harmonious coexistence with the world and technology, what should happen? What kind of value model, business model you think yeah. can be can be created? Yeah, well, I think really maybe the most important thing to take a look at um, is sometimes it's difficult for people to look at because it's such a, a vast uh, topic. But it's we need to recognize that the overall context in which we conduct business in our world today um, is uh, ultimately is this kind of context of global capitalism, which is um, business is conducted in a way that we're meant to pursue maximizing profits for shareholders above all else. And this is so much part of what we just take for granted that sometimes it's hard for people to even realize there could be other ways of even approaching things. But this has actually just been a way of um, conducting projects and enterprise that's arisen in the last few hundred years. Um, and it's one that is based fundamentally on exploitation. It basically starts from the basis that says like, um, it just what we were talking before about <clears throat> we our worldview gives us a sense of separate individuals being separate from everything else around us. And our, the sort of basis of this kind of global capitalism um, is similarly basically saying like um, the goal of capital, the goal of uh, whatever I'm doing when I start up my business is to ultimately exploit what is out there to maximize my returns. Now, um, many more awakened business people might say, well, that's not what I want to do. Basically, I want to, you know, I want to make a decent profit, but I also want to do good and um, treat my employees well and treat my customers well. And that's great. And I absolutely applaud that. The difficulty is that when, we, when it's all part of a system that rewards maximizing profits and shareholder returns above all else, those people who want to do something, who sort of want to do well by doing good kind of thing, and want to be part of a, a positive contribution to that, are playing on a non-level playing field. Because, I mean, and it, it might work when you stay relatively small. If you got a small um, a shop on a high street or whatever, um, then, you know, you might be able to just maintain things and um, feel that you're doing just that. Um, but then when if when some entrepreneur, for example, has a great idea and I, I want to I can improve the world by um, scaling this up and really making a difference, what they run into 
is this um, this uh, sense that in order to scale it up, you need capital. In order to attract capital, you need to offer returns, um, and you need to uh, give ownership to those who are giving you the capital, some level of ownership. And ultimately, uh, you and even the entrepreneurs with the best of intentions um, will find that they begin those intentions get undermined by the requirement for capital to uh, get bigger and bigger returns. So one of the things that I always suggest to people when they do have some great idea and they want to actually, you know, take their life's energy and use it for the, for good, um, I encourage that strongly. I think that's fantastic. But to look at the structure in which you do it. Basically, you know, um, most people by default go to a for-profit structure um, because, you know, it's quite reasonable to want to do well for yourself and make money while you're doing good. And also um, uh, you can expand more that way and all that stuff. And that's the, the norm. But there are other ways you can actually create businesses. You can set up your business itself right from the outset as a cooperative where you can actually share the ownership with those around you um, and actually give opportunities for people joining the company to then become um, part owners. So there's a sense of shared um, unified working together on your mission. And you can even go beyond that and even create a, like what's known as more commons-based um, enterprise where you're actually, uh, you're not just kind of sharing ownership with a few people, but you're seeing your whole mission as being really part of building community where when, so when funds come in, um, they're used for the benefit of all around you. And it can, it can be done in such a way that it doesn't have to, um, it can scale up too. Um, you can actually, uh, you can actually work together to produce something that is, doesn't then have to be compromised as it gets to be successful, but actually can be incredibly successful um, in ways that are of truly for the benefit of all. Like an example of that sort of commons-based structure I'm talking about that we all know well is for, um, Wikipedia is a, is a great example. Um, you know, Wikipedia could have been created like a Google or a Facebook um, to maximize profits for uh, Jimmy Wales, who was the, the founder of the idea and giving maybe like sort of um, Uber or whatever, maybe giving little tidbits of money to people who contribute something. But, you know, he takes most of the money. It got created in a different way where the very act of contributing has value in itself for people and cause people to then create this incredible gift to all of humanity, this amazing collective intelligence of Wikipedia. That's a common space structure. And that's the kind of ways we, we can look at things in different ways right from the outset. Amazing. Thank you very much. I, I, I feel incredibly uh, uh, enlightened by these different models that you, you mentioned. I think also I see that there is this uh, it seems that there is this uh, natural shift of economy happening anyway. It seems that the old way of doing things don't hold up and they're not sustainable. They're not serving us. And I think uh, the idea of creating something that includes other being as stakeholders and shareholders um, goes back to the idea of expanding the sense of self. So as a business owner, 
your business is not just yourself you don't own yourself your your place in a bigger web of life therefore there are other stakeholders involved even though that you might not include them in that um, business uh, formation at uh, in the level of formality it's true it's completely true and um i would just add one thing for um people to be aware of to be somewhat cautious when you do come across um business people talking about stakeholders um because it it's a, it sounds great and mm-hmm. um and it is the way that things should be but oftentimes the big big corporations um you know like we the meeting at davos just finished the world economic forum for example and and there if you listen to what some of the corporate executives talk about um you'll be inspired they'll say oh yes we have to realize we got to go beyond our profits orientation to multi multi stakeholder and basically we have to go to stakeholder capitalism and things that sound good but then when you actually dig a bit deeper you realize that ultimately these are still companies these are big publicly owned companies where the board and the ceo and all the powers that be are beholden to um, maximizing shareholder profits as fast and as as much as possible otherwise they're liable to re- get lawsuits and and some ceo who truly wants to care about other stakeholders maybe let's say a mining company imagine you have a ceo of a mining company and he was actually somebody who's really heartful um and um he said well if we actually uh start to develop this copper mine it'll cause pollution um and uh you know it will be way more expensive it'll be 10 times more expensive to do it in a better way it would be more sustainable um but um maybe that that, that would be um so much better for the environment around there and for the people there so maybe we should do that 10 times more expensive approach but then another competitor comes along and says well screw you i'm going to uh, buy that copper mine for 1/10 the amount and we'll just pollute and hell with it and we'll bribe the local officials and we'll get away with it so that first ceo misses out on the deal and ultimately the shareholders say you're screwing our company up look at these other companies making money we're going to invest there and that's the way that system works so even with the best of intentions these big corporations um i mean with the best of intentions of some executives within those corporations the corporations themselves as systems are absolutely um they're programmed to essentially consume and exploit without regards to any other care so that's why you have to be careful about this notion of stakeholder capitalism oftentimes it's basically like a greenwash it looks nice but it's not actually true um and that's where it's the fundamental ownership structures that have to be changed you know like it would be great to go to these uh CEOs that talk about stakeholder capitalism and say okay great are you ready then to basically um then change the entire ownership structure and um take all those profits and rather than giving them in uh dividends to your shareholders give them actually in um ownership stakes to all of your employees and ownership stakes to all of the um communities around you so that it can truly uh be transformed and i think you'll you know, the answer will be you got to be kidding no way very so true i think in, in in also looking in smart city for example domain it's the same pattern is uh visible in that big tech companies offer massive fast 
return on investment and therefore city authorities would prefer to work with them because it also links to the political agenda right. of the of people who are promoting for example people centricity which is kind of like a label right now in smart city domain um so i think the same it i can call it maybe the same consciousness is what we're dealing with right now in the um, economic structure of the world which uh brings me to the uh, final section of our talk today about what you're doing right now um with this global community of the deep transform transformation network mm. i was uh, i wanted to know about it and also uh the audience to know what it is and what you've learned by working with uh communities and networks Yeah, yeah, this is such an exciting community that um has just it, it basically is just one year old. It just uh got founded um uh roughly a year ago and it now has over 2000 uh, or about 2500 people worldwide a part of this global community. And as you say it's called the Deep Transformation Network and the invitation for people in this community is to basically just join it's free free to join and take part um it's for people who recognize that there is something deeply wrong in our society and our civilization right now and that what we need is not just superficial fixes like um which themselves can be fine like more investment in green technology or developing smart cities or whatever it might be but we need to look at a deep transformation of our society itself if we're going to change the future trajectory of where our civilization is headed essentially um change the basis of civilization itself from one that is based on exploiting and extracting and wealth accumulation to one that is actually based on setting the conditions for basically all people to flourish on a regenerated earth essentially a life affirming civilization that people often increasingly are calling an ecological civilization where based on the principles of of living ecologies so this community is really like people from all walks of life and all parts of the world who share this dedication to wanting to see things transform and it's um it's online so there there are a lot of online discussions a little bit like you'll see in like a Facebook group where people will share articles and there'll be all kinds of comments around it we also have like live monthly networking events through Zoom where um we'll get together and discuss certain themes that arise oftentimes um I'll um interview people who've just come out with a book or some somebody who's got some uh who's kind of well known from a particular perspective and again people will have the opportunity to join in the conversation and there's groups that form of particular sub-specialties and Zuva even like local groups where you can meet um other people in your own region so it's this wonderful growing community of people dedicated to being part of uh transformation Uh, and um you can easily join it you just go to www um deeptransformation.network um and it's it's free to join so i invite anyone who's interested to just check it out and to join if you want and to really to take part in the conversations it's kind of it's a self-organized community because part of what we've been discussing in terms of this possibility of commons based approaches whatever and how nature itself works is according to these processes of self organization where it's not hierarchical where some leader or ceo whatever tells everybody what to do but it's like the collective intelligence forms from our own um, self organized 
communications with each other, building of what each other is doing. And, and it's something, the intelligence itself is an emergent uh, phenomenon that arises from that. Amazing. I really appreciate what you shared. I think it's that um, uh, what we also do is that providing these socio-technological uh, infrastructure that we need and also the value structure that we need for this modern world that we're living, modern complex world, which uh, I think needs us to undergo, I think, personal transformation first and then all hopefully uh, industrial, ecological and also scientific transformation. Right. So, Jeremy, thank you very much for uh, being part of this conversation. I learned so much. I, I feel I, I also was kind of nudged in rethinking some of the ideas I have in my mind. Um, mm. For final question, uh, what is next? What it is that you're doing right now? What it mm-hmm. is that uh, you're busy with? And uh, yeah, well, thanks for for that question. And um, well, so I was mentioning just a moment ago, <clears throat> this vision of an ecological civilization, a fundamentally different civilization that could be possible. And that's actually what I'm working, I'm working right now on the research for a book on that topic. So <clears throat> my working title for the book is um, Future Flourishing, Pathways Toward an Ecological Civilization. And what I'm uh, uh, um, hoping this book will do will show that a fundamentally different civilization is not just some sort of pipe dream, some utopia, but it's actually possible. And that if you look at every different aspect of civilization, whether it's economics or urban design, like you're working on, or technology, or or, um, basically uh, education, anything to do with what our civilization is about, there are pioneering thinkers working on how these things can be transformed if we look in a much deeper way to something that is life-affirming. So what this book will be doing is not so much me coming out with my own brilliant ideas about this or that, but rather looking at all these great ideas that are already being developed by different groups around the world and showing how they can all weave together into a coherent whole and that an alternative life-affirming beneficial civilization is absolutely possible. The thing that stands in its way is really like just the political will and these destructive forces, forces of um, like, you know, these transnational corporations or uh, short-term manipulated politics or things like that. These are the things that are stopping us. But once we can uh, begin to get a real sense of what's actually possible and pathways toward that place, I feel like we can really look at just a possibility that our civilization can turn around this century to that life-affirming path. So one can say that your book is a great news, you can call it the good news, is that uh, a great civilization is possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I truly believe it is possible. I think there are so many enlightened beings, so much that has been done that I think is not been yet brought into the light and also mass awareness that is available to us that if we have this willingness to be on that transformative journey and also change the way we relate to each other and to the world, we can have a better world, definitely. Right, exactly. Thank you, Jeremy, for uh, being a part of this episode. Uh, it was uh, the fifth episode, and I am very excited and grateful for what we shared. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Ima. It was a really rich conversation. I really appreciated it. Thank you. Thank you.